Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If that's you, I hope you'll grab a few friends and meet weekly to work your way through the Word Diet. If that's not you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that spot. So how about grabbing them? for a weekly meeting and work through the Word Diet over the next year. More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Leviticus starting this week, a grossly underrated book, and I look forward to getting into it with you. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Previous episodes of The Word Diet are available by podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, SoundCloud, and the like. Today's show, we're going to begin Leviticus with an overview and then an introduction to the sacrifices. Lord, be with us as we open up your scriptures. Thank you for Leviticus. We thank you for what it will show us about you and what you want from us and for us in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station, and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're starting the book of Leviticus today. We'll give an overview of the book and provide an introduction to the sacrificial system. The title of the book means related to the Levites, and it comes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Levites are only mentioned once, but it is largely about their duties. Gordon Wenham says it's a fairly appropriate title. It would be wrong, however, to describe Leviticus as simply a manual for priests. It is equally, if not more, concerned with the part the laity should play in worship. Only a few sections specifically concern the priests alone. So if we miss this opening point, we're going to see Leviticus in inaccurate terms, and it's going to make it improperly far less relevant to us It'll reduce it to ritual from its rich theological contributions. Now, its primary content is laws and regulations for sacrifices and offerings, what we would call worship, or at least part of it, ceremonial cleanliness, moral and civil law, and holy days and years. And all of this is about loving and worshiping and approaching God and loving others. Leviticus is therefore also a continuation of the law from Exodus 19 through 40 and the discussion of the tabernacle and the priest in Exodus 25 through 40. They are still at Mount Sinai. The book of Numbers, which follows, also contains the same sort of discussion, but it does culminate here. Numbers, and especially Deuteronomy, will focus on history and narrative after Mount Sinai. So why read and study this as Christians? As Walvert and Zook put it, Leviticus was the first book studied by a Jewish child, yet it often is among the last books of the Bible to be studied by a Christian. I like how Daniel Harrell puts it in his useful Christianity Today article. He says, Mention Leviticus to most people, and what comes to mind is that arcane tome of Torah devoted primarily to the proper and gruesome management of sin through animal sacrifice. Others may recall mind-numbing instructions on how to rightly handle infectious skin disease and mildew 
and a mishmash of other commandments about not mixing fibers and seeds and not sleeping with your stepmother or sister or nephew, commandments deemed either irrelevant or plain common sense, rarely studied and even more rarely preached, Leviticus often becomes that graveyard where read through the Bible in a year plans go to die. Skeptics know it as ammunition for homosexual haters or as a target for animal rights activists. Many Jews regard it as awkward and outmoded. To slog through it can be unbelievably tedious, which is why most of us don't. But what would it look like to take Leviticus as seriously as we take the rest of the Bible? And that's really the question at hand. And I'm not saying it's going to be in your top 10 after we talk about it, but we do want to motivate why we read and study it. Well, for one thing, it's part of the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful. And so if that's the case for all Scripture, that would include Leviticus. Second, although there's a tendency to talk about an Old and a New Testament God, it's the same God of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so what is there to learn about the universal and never-ending character of God. With all the references to God said to Moses, Harold says there's more direct quotations from God than any other book in the Bible, so that's certainly of interest. And it is referred to about 40 times in the New Testament. It's also where the second great commandment comes from. Leviticus 19.18 is where love your neighbor comes from. Or consider a passage like 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, which quotes a phrase used four times in Leviticus. Peter writes, But just as he who calls you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. In fact, you can't understand key concepts in the New Testament without understanding Leviticus. What do sacrifice, atonement, holiness, unclean, the significance of blood, what do those mean without understanding what's happening in Leviticus. And most important, as all of Scripture, there's a type here that this points forward to Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. Christ is our priest, our temple, our altar, our sacrifice, and allows us and those things around us to be purified. The book of Hebrews is very important on this, but Hebrews is pointing back to, in particular, Leviticus. So we want to study this. We want to read it as well. And I think this is one book, along with, for me, Isaiah, where there's a tremendous gap between studying it and reading it. Reading it is difficult, and so I hope I can be helpful for you as we move through the book together. So how do we read it? With what lenses, from what angles? Let's start very broadly here. Jacob Milgram talks about reading and interpreting the Bible in general, and Leviticus in particular, and he uses terms like maximalist and minimalist. And we would use terms like conservative and liberal, or literal and figurative. And he uses the Constitution as an example. I thought that was interesting. Those who see it as a more literal document and those who see it as more active living and breathing. And that instructs how we're going to try to read it as well. We're going to be conservative, literal, and trying to understand what it meant to Israel then. And we're going to be minimalist or liberal or figurative focusing on the big picture as we look at what it means for us today. And this is what we typically do. As always, what did it mean for them should be a priority for us, and what does it mean for us in terms of God's character and what he wants for us and from us? That agenda should be the same as we approach the Bible, whether reading Genesis, Revelation, or Leviticus. Now, for Israel, the top thing to consider is how does Leviticus speak to their relationship with God? 
Later, the psalmist would write in chapter 27, verse 4, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. But how is that to be done? Elsewhere, the psalmist posed it as a question. Psalm 15, 1, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Or Psalm 24, verse 3, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And to these questions, Leviticus deals with a key distinction. We've talked about the tabernacle. That's been accomplished. It's been built. God's presence will be among them. But the term for tabernacle also can be translated, and there are other terms used in Hebrew, calling it a tent of meeting. And that has not been accomplished. How are they to meet with God? Now, there's an allusion to this in Exodus 28 and 29 with the institution of the priests, but we're not sure what the priests are going to do at this point. And we closed Exodus 40, noting that not even Moses could come into God's presence anymore. And so this is the key thing that Leviticus is going to resolve. What does the tent of meeting, how does Israel meet God? How's that going to take place? And of course, that has tremendous application for us Michael Morales says this biblical theology of Leviticus is a book about the theme of dwelling with God in the house of God and how that reality is finally made possible. Another consideration for Israel is that in its place and time, how does relationship with God and religion distinguish itself from what's happening with pagan religion and culture? Let me give you some examples. The food would be outside the most holy place and consumed by humans. For example, the bread for the priest in the holy place and meat from some sacrifices for people to be eaten in the courtyard. This is in contrast to pagan religions that house and feed the gods in their shrines. We see an example of this, God responding to this in Psalm 50 verses 9 through 13. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and or drink the blood of goats? And of course, the answer is no, but that's not what the pagan religions that Israel is dealing with thought at the time. So this is a response in part to pagan religion. Another example is that all of this would be done in silence. And this is in contrast to the mantras and the incantations of pagan priests. Think about Joshua 6, when they would walk around Jericho in silence, the priestly efforts in Leviticus and beyond are also, as far as we know, done in silence as well. A third example, the sacrificial system would involve the laity significantly. Yes, the priests would be their agents at the altars, but for the pagans, it was the priests only who were involved. And that's a key theme that we'll play with later. And the last point I want to make here is that Leviticus sees non-sin bodily impurity as harmless rather than demonic, except as it intersects with the holy God. So, contact with impure people does not render them impure except what they sit on, for example, a bed, seat, or saddle. And so, another example, menstruating women are not demonic, as uh, would have been the case in pagan religions. And all of this is ironic given the perceptions that people commonly have about Leviticus. So, we'll have a lot more to say about this in chapters 11 through 15 when we get to that famous or infamous part of Leviticus. Now let's broaden it out for us. Let's focus on what Jacob Milgram calls values. And he says this, when a primitive community wished to preserve and teach its basic values, it did not rely on words, but ensconced them in rituals. 
Values are what Leviticus is all about. They pervade every chapter and almost every verse. Leviticus does discuss rituals. However, underlying the rituals, the careful reader will find an intricate web of values that purports to model how we should relate to God and to one another. The rituals of Leviticus contain fundamental values that in aggregate prescribe a holy and ethical life. So broadly already, we're speaking to the importance of leading an intentional life the general and the specific role of spiritual disciplines, etc., things that we talk about quite a bit in Christian circles. Milgram warns that when rituals fail to make concrete our theological commitment, they become oddities, superstitions, or small idolatries. Ritual is the poetry of religion that leads us to a moment of transcendence, but a ritual must signify something beyond itself. And that's true in Leviticus, and it's true for us as well. So an example may be helpful here. John Golding Gay in his Christianity Today article talks about the impurity that obtains after burying a family member or from ejaculation. So what principles come from this? Well, first, neither is about sin. Well, unless you ignore Leviticus's laws about how to deal with the uncleanness. Second, death may be normal, but it is unnatural from the fall of man in Genesis 3. Third, sex is good, but it's not divine. Fourth, God is not connected to death or sex when we often obsess on both. And fifth, for Israel, they were supposed to keep God separate from these things through purposeful, instructed discipline and worship. Finally, in terms of how we read this, particularly as Christians, Gordon Winham is helpful here. He says, in one sense, the whole ceremonial law in Leviticus is obsolete for the Christian. But in another sense, the Levitical rituals are still of immense relevance. It was in terms of these sacrifices that Jesus himself and the early church understood his atoning death. Leviticus provided the theological models for their understanding. If we wish to walk in our Lord's steps and think his thoughts after him, we must attempt to understand the sacrificial system of Leviticus. Rediscovering the principles of Old Testament worship written there, we may learn something of the way we should approach a holy God. And so we have a lot of work to do in this good and great book. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're starting into our study of Leviticus today. In the first segment, I talked about why we should read it and how to read it. And now in this second segment, I want to talk about key themes. For this discussion, I'm indebted to the commentary of Gordon Wenham. The first theme to underline here is the presence of God. And as Wenham notes, this idea is expressed times without number in Leviticus. Now, this builds on the tabernacle narrative from the book of Exodus. And remember, there are two key Hebrew terms here. The first is translated tabernacle, and that's accomplished. God is present with them. But the second term that's used for the same structure is the tent of meeting, and that has not been resolved at all. How do we, how did Israel, meet with him. God is awesome as the creator who is powerful, as a deliverer who is compassionate, as a sustainer who is gracious, as a redeemer who's merciful. But how do we know God, the key verb in the book of Exodus, and here in particular, how do we have relationship with him? How do we meet with him? If you were with us when we talked about the tabernacle, we discussed in great detail the parallels between the tabernacle and creation and the Garden of Eden. Michael Morales builds on that in the following quote. 
Affirming the tabernacle as a restoration of Eden's garden, the theology and narrative drama of Leviticus become apparent. Exodus 40 closes with a wonder, the Garden of Eden planted, as it were, in the midst of Sinai's arid wilderness. But remember, Moses couldn't get in at the end of Exodus 40, and if not Moses, how can the people? Morales continues, the legislation of Leviticus then is not merely offering tedious ritual instruction. Rather, it is narrating a theological story. Leviticus begins with Israel, God's second firstborn son, or second Adam, standing outside the cherubim-guarded entry of Eden. If Moses the mediator may not enter, then how will it be possible for the tabernacle to become a tent of meeting between God and all Israel? And of course, this is of immense interest to Christians because the tabernacle is ultimately manifested in Christ and the incarnation, the spirit and his empowerment, the church as his body, and ultimately we're with him in paradise and then in heaven, dwelling with God, meeting with God, the presence of God. The second theme is the covenant with God. Now, the term is only mentioned 10 times in Leviticus, and eight of those are in Leviticus 26 as the covenant is renewed. So this is more behind the scenes, but it is pervasive and implied throughout. Again, this is the sequel to Exodus, and they are still at Mount Sinai. We can think of Leviticus in the terms of the covenant as well. Chapters 1 through 17 is how to do covenant worship. Chapters 18 through 25 on the covenant consistent behavior. And then the call to renew the covenant finally in chapter 26. The covenant was given out of grace. It's not something that Israel deserved. It's not something that we deserve, of course. And it's for eternity. It's based on promises to the patriarchs. But we also know it's not based on cheap grace. And we saw these tensions at the end of Exodus leading into and largely resolved by God's revelation of himself after the golden calf incident. A third prominent theme, maybe the most prominent, is God's holiness and his call to them and to us to be holy. Leviticus 20 verse 26 You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. The term is used 74 times in Leviticus, more than any other book. Wenham says it could be termed the motto of Leviticus, and we define holiness as being separate, set apart, sanctified, and pure. Now, holiness is contrasted with things that are common, and common things can be divided into those that are clean or pure, and those things that are unclean or impure, whether from natural causes or sinful behavior. We'll have much more to say about this later. We'll need to develop this in great detail. But for now, Wenham, I think, is helpful here on the categories. He says, clean things become holy when they are sanctified, but unclean objects cannot be sanctified. Holy items may be defiled and become common, even polluted, and therefore unclean. Wenham continues, cleanness is the natural state of most creatures. Holiness is a state of grace to which men are called by God, and it is attained through obeying the law and carrying out rituals such as sacrifice. Uncleanness is a substandard condition to which men descend through bodily processes and sin, and uncleanness was quite incompatible with the holiness of the covenant people and God. So in Leviticus, spiritual holiness is symbolized by physical perfection and sacrificial animals, ritually clean people, and undefiled, undeformed priests. And the unclean could not contact the holy. Think back to how Adam and Eve were banished from the garden of Genesis 3, but they could be pronounced whole with subsequent perfect sacrifices. 
We could read many passages out of Leviticus to illustrate this, but I'm going to go with chapter 22, verses 31 through 33. Keep my commands and follow them. I am the Lord. Do not profane my holy name, for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who made you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So here we have God's holiness, God's demand for our holiness, for us to acknowledge him and not to profane his holy name, and God's empowerment to make us holy. We see God's reference to himself as the I am and Yahweh and all that entails, especially from the book of Exodus. It's connected to obedience in verse 31 and redemption in verse 33. And in Christian terms, it points to the requirements for justification and the goals for sanctification, our ongoing walk with God. First Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are saved, but what does it look like to attain to increasing holiness in our daily lives? And this is two of Leviticus's primary questions. How can sin be removed? The question of atonement, or in our terms, justification. And second, how can holiness be maintained and extended the process of sanctification? Romans 5, 8 through 10 is very helpful here. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? If we think about justification and sanctification in terms of Israel, God had taken the people out of Egypt now he's trying to take Egypt out of the Israelites. With respect to Israel's sanctification and ours, we have a daily walk. We have periodic worship. What kind of worship, what kind of offerings should I bring? And in terms of sanctification for them and for us, it's by God's provision, but also by our participation. And Leviticus is going to focus on their participation within that process. The fourth theme is the role of animal sacrifice. This would be in place of human sacrifice, which is what pagan religions often did. And it's also interesting that this narrows the animals that could be killed and eaten and how this would be done. Both of these points are ironic, given how some see all of this as brutality. And in fact, even in worldly terms, this increases the humaneness and the civilization of Israel's society compared to the pagan nations. The sacrificial blood of animals was to cleanse and to sanctify, to reverse the effect of sin in profaning the holy, polluting the clean, and damaging others, and to make it possible to be in God's holy presence. The key words can be translated in a few ways, to make atonement, to cleanse or wipe, to pay a ransom, which could be to God, and reparation to one who has been harmed. As Morales puts it, the way to God then is through a bloody knife and a burning altar. While Exodus had closed with the inaccessibility of God in his dwelling, Leviticus opens with divine legislation aimed at allowing Israel to draw near. He notes that the word atonement can be restructured in the English as at-one-ment, and so this implies reconciliation, a ransom from death as well as purified from the pollution of death's realm. But still, all of this is through God's provenient mercy and grace. It's tempting to look at the sacrifices as being the way in which forgiveness and 
purification takes place, it's all by God's grace. Sacrifice is simply the mechanism. For example, in many passages, it says the priest will make atonement for him, her, or them, and they, he, or she will be forgiven or cleaned. The priest makes atonement, but it's up to God to forgive and to clean. As Wenham puts it, holiness was not acquired merely by obeying the law or undergoing some ritual. It is God himself who gives the desired result of holiness or cleanness. Mere performance of the rite by the priest is inadequate. God is the one who grants forgiveness and cleaning. Again, this takes us back to the tremendous revelation about the holiness of God, and from there his desire to be in right relationship with us for our good and his glory. And so it's ultimately about his love and grace. Kathleen Norris writes, Seen in this light, what strikes many modern readers is the ludicrous attention to detail in the book of Leviticus involving God and the minutia of daily life, all the cooking and cleaning of a people's domestic life, might be revisioned as the very love of God, a God who cares so much to desire to be present to us in everything we do. This is not the God of deism. This is not the God of the so-called Old Testament. This is the God of grace and love who pervades the entire Bible. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcast of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Questions and comments are always welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're starting into our study of Leviticus today. In the first segment, we talked about why to read and study Leviticus and how to read it. Second segment, we talked about key themes. And I want to open this third segment by talking about the structure of Leviticus and how it fits into the Pentateuch, and then we'll finally dig into the text. There are many ways to think about the structure of Leviticus. Wenham talks about sacrifice in the first seven chapters, sacrifice to ordain the priest in chapters 8 through 10, the occasions for sacrifice, chapters 11 through 16, and then the call to holiness and purity in chapters 18 through 26. Following the Decalogue of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, Milgram finds a Decalogue of Ritual Life in Leviticus, five offerings, chapters 1 through 7, and then five types of impurity in chapters 11 through 15. The number five is also interesting because Leviticus is within the five-book Pentateuch, and the book of Psalms is divided into five subsets of Psalms as well. One of the key points of Hebrew literature is the feature of chiasma or inclusio. And this is the idea of building towards something in the middle and then building back. Or think of bookends. There's things on the ends and then things just inside that and so on until the middle. And that's a way of emphasizing what's in the middle. Now, scholars debate what's in the middle of Leviticus. Milgram argues for chapter 19, and that's love and justice between the people at the center of what Leviticus is after. If that's the way to think about Leviticus, then chapters 18 and 20 are the bookends to chapter 19. Those are both on sexual immorality. The structure there is very easy to see. Chapters 11 through 16 and chapters 21 through 23 are on things that are impure, unclean, and the idea of blemished priest and sacrifices. Chapter 10 is the holy place defiled, whereas chapter 24 is God's name being defiled. And then at the beginning, chapters 1 through 9 and chapter 25, you have things or persons that are consecrated to Yahweh. Michael Morales argues that Leviticus 16 is at the center of things, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and as such, the bridge chapter in chapter 17 
verse 11 is a nice summary verse for the life of a creature's in the blood and i've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life and so of course it's quite reasonable especially for christians because we see jesus in the day of atonement to read leviticus 16 as the center of this great book there's also the structural matter of Leviticus within the Pentateuch, and it's at the center, certainly in terms of literature, it's the third of five books, but also in terms of theology. Morales is very helpful here with a number of points. He notes that the, once the fivefold nature of the Pentateuch is in view, the centrality of Leviticus becomes readily apparent. Thematically, there's also good reason to believe the Pentateuch is structured concentrically. Genesis and Deuteronomy both end with a patriarch, Jacob and Moses, blessing the twelve tribes before dying outside the land. And Exodus and Numbers have many parallel events, framing Leviticus as the central book. Genesis and Deuteronomy are both about separation from the nations, blessing, seeing the land and an emphasis on the descendants. Exodus and Numbers are both about Israel's desert journeys, apostasy and plagues. Pharaoh and the magicians in Exodus are contrasted with Balak and Balaam in the book of Numbers. And then, of course, in the center of that is the sacrifice, cleanliness, and holiness of the book of Leviticus. Or we could also think of Genesis as prologue, Deuteronomy as epilogue. In Exodus, you have leaving Egypt. In Numbers, you have preparing to enter Canaan. In Exodus, you have building the tabernacle. Numbers, you have dedicating the tabernacle. And then Leviticus, again, the center, has the tabernacle service. In the Pentateuch, Sinai is central. Remember, in Exodus, they're coming to Sinai. Numbers, they're leaving Sinai. Leviticus is at Sinai. The centrality of the tabernacle is also important. Exodus, second half, sets up the tabernacle. First half of Numbers takes it down. Leviticus itself comprises God's speeches from the tabernacle. But the most interesting point that Morales brings up is with respect to time. If you look at Genesis 1 through Exodus 12, and then the second half of Numbers through Deuteronomy, time is reckoned in years. In the middle, for Exodus 12 through Numbers 10, time is counted as months, which underlines the liturgical year. But Morales notes that Leviticus has neither itinerary notices of location nor chronological markers of time. And so, in a sense, it is timeless and spaceless, and it illustrates a deliberate concern about sacred space and sacred time, which again is timeless and universal. So that takes us to the text itself. Leviticus 1 through 10 stands in as a single unit. As Morales puts it, there's legislation for sacrifice, chapters 1 through 7, consecration of the priesthood, chapter 8, both prerequisites for the culminating inauguration of religious practice and ritual, the initiation of the tabernacle system of worship in chapters 9 and 10. So let's read chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which provides an introduction to all sacrifices and offerings that will range through chapters 1 through 7. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, dot, dot, dot. The first thing to say here is, again, to put this in the context of Exodus and the whole problem of coming near to God. Matyer says the division between Exodus and Leviticus is a traditional separation of an originally continuous text. We should actually move without interruption from the reality of Moses' exclusion at the end of Exodus to the reality of drawing near in Leviticus 1, verses 1 and 2. While sin excludes, the prescribed offerings are able to bring near. Holiness bars the way, but mercy opens it. 
Or as Morales puts it, understanding the closing verses of Exodus 40, both the height of the wonder they unfold as well as the depth of the problem they present, is essential for grasping the place and function of Leviticus within the story of the Pentateuch. Exodus ends, after all, without humanity's actual re-entry into divine presence. The story cannot be complete. And so this transforms the entire narrative history of Genesis and Exodus into something of an introduction to the book of Leviticus. And God's answer to this is that the divine presence amidst a sinful people required divinely revealed legislation. And that's what we're about to read. So verse 1 opens with the Lord called, spoke, and said to Moses. The three verbs here of God speaking are all over the book of Exodus. Again, this is why Leviticus is said to have the most direct quotes from God. As I noted a minute ago, Leviticus is timeless, literally and figuratively, but it's also grounded here with this opening verse in narrative and history, albeit briefly. The three verbs are for communication, but called is the unusual one underlining the importance of what's taking place here. Morales notes that this word in particular sets the entire book of Leviticus within the development of God's redemptive dealings. God called to Adam, Genesis 3.9. God called to Moses from within the bush, Exodus 3. God called to him from the mountain, Exodus 19. God called to Moses from within the cloud, Exodus 24. And here, Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, Leviticus 1.1. It's also important to note that God is the genesis of all of this. The legitimacy of what follows stems from God, as we argued with the Ten Commandments as well as his promises, his character, his action and nature with creation and in history as a deliverer and sustainer. And it's to Moses, which makes Moses the likely author, as he is assumed to be with most of the Pentateuch with some light editing. Now, God could have spoken to the people directly. Why doesn't he? Well, first, it'd be revealing too much to those who are not in a particularly deep relationship with God. It underlines Moses' great knowledge of and close relationship with God. It's also a type with Christ who delivered for us as a mediator. Again, the book of Hebrews is very helpful. But the main point to make here is that for Israel in particular, again, the tabernacle is established, but the tent of meeting function of the tabernacle has not been established yet. And so the mention of the tent of meeting at the end of verse 1 is especially important. For one thing, it gives us the timing. This is between the tabernacle details and construction of Exodus 25 through 40 and the census of Numbers 1 through 4. In fact, the Sinai narrative extends from Exodus 19 all the way to Numbers chapter 10. The timing is also that it's given in 1446 BC at Mount Sinai, and then the book is written then or perhaps during the wilderness wanderings over the next 40 years. The setting is that it's given to Moses at the mercy seat and the atonement cover. Matthew Henry observes here that the moral law was given with terror from a burning mountain and thunder and lightning, but here this is given in a more gentle manner, typical of the mercy and grace within the sacrifices about to be appointed. Again, this points to the key question. How can the Lord be present with his people? Exodus is on building the tabernacle, but in Leviticus, what about the priest and the worshiper? And so Leviticus is the necessary sequel to Exodus. As Morales puts it, Leviticus underscores the necessity of its revelation of legislation and personnel ordained by God as the way by which Israel may approach Yahweh. 
In other words, Leviticus recounts and gives us the theology behind how the tabernacle steadily becomes the tent of meeting. And this will culminate in the awesome climax of Leviticus chapter 9. And then to verse 2, the key word is offering, which is repeated a few times, and then throughout Leviticus more than 300 times. The Hebrew word here is korban, which you may remember Jesus using in Mark 7.11, and it's derived from the Hebrew root to draw near. In total, there are four uses of this related word just in the beginning of verse 2. You might paraphrase it, when anyone brings near a bring near to Yahweh, you shall bring near your bring near. As Morales puts it, while Exodus had closed with the inaccessibility of God in his dwelling, Leviticus opens with divine legislation aimed at allowing Israel to draw near. And so what we'll see in the passages that follow is five offerings and sacrifices described with precision in the next seven chapters. It tells us that many were needed to model and typify the person of Christ and our relationship with God, and the precision will set the standard very high, which implies their importance, and in general emphasizes the importance of pursuing appropriate means to godly ends. All right, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're starting into our study of Leviticus today. In the first segment, we talked about why we should study it and how to study it. The second segment, we talked about the key themes. And the previous segment, we talked about the structure of Leviticus and its placement within the Pentateuch. And we did the first two verses with some of the themes that come out of that. So now we want to read verses 3 through 9, which I'll use as an introduction to the general composition and consumption of sacrifices. On the next show, we will distinguish between this offering and the other offerings. So verse 3, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. So an animal from the herd, so here that would be a young bull, but cheaper animals, sheep and goats, and sometimes birds, doves and pigeons would be allowed. Note that it's domestic, not wild or game animals, so it was to be a costly and valuable sacrifice. One thinks of David in 2 Samuel 24, but it was to be affordable as well. Remember that some sacrifices allowed birds. We see this in the life of Jesus in Luke 2, 24. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 talks about a sum of money in keeping with his income, or 2 Corinthians 8, 12, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So we see that principle at work in the Old Testament as well. There's some spirit of the law here, and the decisions are left to some extent at their discretion, as with our giving. It's a male animal in this context, greater economic value, but some offerings later will allow the females. Verse 3, it's without blemish or defect. Chapter 22, verses 17 through 25 gives details on that. And chapter 2, verse 23 talks about free will gift offerings that are uh, not necessarily without defect, but we'll talk about that later. It's interesting when the same term is applied to humans, it's translated as blameless. So this is a type. The animals are to be without blemish, and we are to be blameless. G. Campbell Morgan says, They were to be symbols of a sacrifice which the worshipers could not provide, but which would be provided by God, because they were to symbolize perfection. They must be, so far as man could make sure of it, perfect. 
And so there's easy application here to giving our best. Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Matthew Henry says, he that considers that God is the best that is will resolve to give him the best he has. A great contrast to this is in Malachi 1, verses 6 through 14, where God critiques the priest for accepting and the people for offering animals that fall far short of the standards laid out here in Leviticus. And again, our sacrifices should be costly rather than cheap and casual. Verse 3 also has that they should present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting, so it will be acceptable to the Lord. So the location is a very big deal. Apparently, this is at the doorway of the tabernacle's courtyard, serving as a gateway. Matthew Henry says here, he must offer it at the door as one unworthy to enter, and acknowledging that there is no admission for a sinner into covenant and communion with God, but by sacrifice. So it's not anyhow, and it's not anywhere. So the animal is to be chosen privately, presented publicly, and mediated pastorally. Morales talks about a number of pastoral opportunities that would come with this. Was the worshiper seeking to approach God without cost? Was he careless in choosing an improper animal? There's a temptation here for bribes. Or imagine the abuse that a faithful priest might endure from people who are unrighteous. Leviticus 17, 1-9 goes further with this, laying out sacrifices only at the tent of meeting. And the theme is also picked up in Deuteronomy 12. It's not to be in the camp or outside of it, verse 3. And chapter 17, verse 5 says that they were now making these sacrifices in the open field. So it's to be brought under the supervision of the priest. If not, chapter 17, verse 4 says they'd be guilty of bloodshed. And verses 4 and 9 says they must be cut off from his people. This is banishment and other things, a theme and a term we'll talk about later. Now, there were exceptions to this. There is some meat-eating freedom that's extended given geographic growth that will appear later. This is described in Deuteronomy 12. And there are also examples of special cases when this sort of thing was ordered by angels, prophets, or God. Now, why the general rule? I think one is quality control and limiting compromise with pagan religious practices. Chapter 17, verse 7 talks about goat idols and demons to whom they prostitute themselves. We could also see that this would promote order and unity, and as we'll t describe in the coming weeks, this would assure sustenance for the priests. They get a lot of the food that's connected to these sacrifices. For us, there are pretty easy applications here. Public worship remains important. Hebrews 10.25, we should not give up meeting together as some of the habit are doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. The object of our worship is crucial. 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, the mediator, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, again, using the language of Leviticus. But the specific location of worship is not relevant. Malachi 1, 11, right in the middle of the passage I noted earlier, my name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets, and every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Or Jesus in John 4.21, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Or a great passage like Romans 12.1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
Back to Leviticus chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Verse 4 begins with the offerer to lay his hand on its head. Lay hands is literally lean to put weight on, heavy pressure to rely upon. A lot of symbolism here. It's at least ownership, although that had already been established at the doorway introduction to the whole ceremony. Given Malachi 1.13, one can read this as gaining favor of the king or deity. In the case of sin, it's likely to identify self and sin with the sacrificial animal, what's called transference, but the term is not always used this way. I think the most compelling explanation is that this is a vicarious substitute, as if I am the animal when I offer it for sacrifice. Morales notes that this points to a willingness to die to oneself, submission to the judgment of God. It's not that the worshiper's sins have been transferred to the animal, but rather that the blameless one the animal, must die life for life. There can be no atonement apart from death. We see this theme over and over again. Israel was not merely delivered from the waters of death, but through them, dying to the old life in Egypt. Noah was delivered through the waters of death. The old creation is crucified for the new. We are to be crucified to self and the world and the like. It's through death that we find life. Verse 4 talks about a cause and effect of atonement, but again, it relies on God's mercy and grace. And it also assumes that it's accompanied by confession and prayer, as is explicit in chapter 16, verse 21. Wenham says here, sacrifice without prayer is useless. Mere ceremonial or church attendance is inadequate by itself. They must be accompanied by heartfelt prayer and praise. In verse 5, the offerer is to slaughter the animal before the Lord. Again, sacrificing their own animal would make this a more concrete and sobering moment. They would slit the throat, which would be quicker death and maximize the blood drainage. And then after the sacrifice, the priest's work began in earnest. Later in verse 5, the priest shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides. In other offerings, the remainder would be poured out at the base of the altar. Now, this is not merely about disposal, but it signifies deserving to have one's own blood poured out and or the desire to pour out one's soul. Again, the symbolism here is a ransom from death, purifying the tabernacle and its furnishings from pollution. As Morales puts it, life ransoms from death and life wipes away the stain of death. Roy Honeycutt says the blood uniquely belonged to God, for the life was the blood. Hence, it could not be offered to God. It could only be returned to God by the priest who had assumed a state of holiness, which permitted him to deal with so hallowed a reality as blood. And of course, all of this points to the type of Christ's blood for us and its efficacy. Hebrews 9, 21 and 22, in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Verses 6 through 9, the offerer is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood that is on the altar. He is to wash the inner parts and the legs with water, and then the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. In 7 and 8, the priests take care of the fire and the burning, but again, most of the activity here is the offerer. Verse 6, the offerer skins it, cuts it into pieces. Again, terribly bloody, 
Less shocking in that culture, but still a vivid picture of the cost of sin. It's hard to imagine that one would have a flippant attitude towards worship, sin, and morality in this ceremony. Verse 9, the offerer would wash the inner parts and the legs with water, cleaning away dirt and excrement from them. Wenham says the clean and holy priest must be kept from pollution. Therefore, the worshiper must undertake the messier tasks. And then the punchline in verse 9, it's an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to God. Great verse on this is Ephesians 5.2 on Christ, and then I've already referred to Romans 12.1. There are many other New Testament passages that play with this idea from Leviticus. Here the animal is not destroyed, but transformed into smoke. The smoke allows the worshiper to vicariously go through it from the ordinary earthly plane to the divine heavenly realm. Lord, we thank you for this opening to the book of Leviticus. We thank you that Christ gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to you. We pray that we would live as living sacrifices for you, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Previous episodes are available by podcast. You can interact with me on Facebook, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.